Today, we're going to talk about how the internet and social media have changed discussions about race since the 80s and 90s. And we're honored to be uh, joined by writer, educator, filmmaker, and scholar, Dr. Rob Eichmann. Although, did you just mispronounce his last name, Jamie? E Eichmann. Dr. Eschman. There we go. Eshman. That's yeah. And even though he told me not to do it, I did it anyway. <laughs> yeah. But Dr. Eschman is a PhD from the University of Chicago and is an associate professor at the Columbia University School of Social Work and a faculty associate at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Rob has recently published his first book, When the Hood Comes Off Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. So he kind of like, maybe he knows some stuff. <laughs> He's probably a good person to <laughs> the subject. Well, um, first, tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Um, the book is about the ways that technology has changed how we experience, understand, and respond to racism. In it, I draw on interviews with about 85 students from around the country, five different cities from L.A., Atlanta, Chicago, New York, and Boston. Um, and then I also draw on millions of of tweets and doing kind of a analysis of, of of how we have been, you know, the ways that we talk about race has changed over the past decade. Um, and so it really is, you know, a comprehensive and systematic but story and human centered exploration of how technology is changing our, you know, our our national consciousness and uh, conversations about about race and racism. I guess let's start with. On that, because when I think how discussions along these lines happened in the 80s and 90s, and I'll admit I was quite young, so probably didn't really apply to me, but it seems like you kind of had two two sides where like you had your face-to-face -face discussions, and with your face-to-face -face discussion, you're probably going to be more polite unless you're kind of the capital R racist, which I think is how you refer to it in your book. You've got the lowercase r mm -hmm. and the capital, capital R, to whereas they're just blatant about it. And now it seems like with the internet and social media, people are less interested in having those conversations face-to-face -face and more interested in having them online. But when they're online, they seem to be more volatile. Is that? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, so I, I don't know if I would say people are less interested in having them in person, maybe equally as disinterested in having them in person. But now there's a there's another option, right? There's a third option where you can go and have this conversation online where you feel a little bit more comfortable um, speaking your truth. And that could be for folks who have racist views and feel like they might get fired, uh, you know, if they say them out loud. You get behind an, an anonymous username on a form and now you can say it without being scared of there being a consequence. Um, and, and on the opposite side, um, I think that it, it's difficult for folks of color to talk about racism um, in, you know, kind of mixed race settings when, when you're not just speaking to your own. Um, you, you know, it, it's hard that people, you know, white folks tend to get defensive when talking about these types of things. And, and for black folks who are right, whether you're a student in a predominantly white, you know, um, school or, or whether you're employed in, in a place that is predominantly white. To bring up race and makes you seem too sensitive, too militant, um, and you feel like your relationships or your job may be in jeopardy to have those conversations or to point out how people are engaging in problematic behaviors or how things that they may have said can be hurtful. So I think that something that happens online is 
is, you know, there's a little bit of distance. You have more time to think about what you're saying and folks feel more comfortable speaking up and challenging racism. Um, and I think we're, if, if we're talking about the eighties and nineties, and if I can, you know, if I can take it back a little bit here is that, that, you know, let's say, let's talk about the forties and fifties when racism was legal, when it was the law of the land, people were very comfortable being open about racist ideas. And now fast forward to the eighties and nineties, um, several decades after the classic years of the civil rights movement, passage of the Civil Rights Act, racism is illegal and racism has gone out of style, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when I talk about racism with a capital R, it's kind of our popular definitions of racism are just the open white supremacists, people who admit it. In the 80s and 90s, there's no one who, you know, really wants to admit that they are racist, but racism still exists. Racism still creates racial inequality. So how do we understand it when people are being kind and gentle um, with their racism? And so I think that that is this natural shift that happened over time, that racism, racist ideas follow um, policies and laws, uh, not maybe not the other way around. Um, and 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 what we're seeing now with technology is that maybe we, you know, we should not assume that racism is behind us just because it is not as apparent as it once was. Um, and so I think that that's something that that we're that we're realizing is that that when we're quiet about racism, it it reproduces itself. When when we don't speak up about it, it's um, it's harder to to prove to other folks that it's still a problem in society that needs fixing. My general opinion on social media is that it's kind of like the argument that we have now for why politics is so polarized and all these other things are so polarized because we've got social media, we've got websites where we kind of go into our own little echo chamber and read news from our echo chamber that reinforces our beliefs already. When we exit that for just a brief moment, it's usually just to tell somebody else how wrong they are. And then we jump back mm. to our echo chamber. To me, it seems like the the social media aspect of it is making it worse but do you think it's just making it more visible in that way that that's a very interesting question is it making it worse um i would imagine that this is not the first time in history where politics has been polarized right the civil mm -hmm. war was a war over a difference in 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 politics right so that that, that for at every at every stage in american history you had people who were violently opposed to the opposing party um, so I don't know that that is new. I think that it's easy for us to blame a technology for a problem that it goes beyond the the technology. Um, now, certainly, social media can amplify marginalized views on both sides of the political aisle. So in terms of the far right finding their voice online, I do think that we can trace that. I think the white supremacist groups have long been, um, you know, smart about the way that they used um, online technologies. And so, right, I cite, you know, research about uh, white supremacist groups who registered martinlutherking.org to trick people into reading false information about Dr. King. Um, and, you know, how, we don't know how many kids use that website without knowing that racists were the ones who wrote it. Like how many school reports were written with that as a, a, a source in the, in the bibliography. Um, so I, th I think that we do see that. I think when we look at Trump and his rise, that, you know, his style of speaking is similar to his style of tweeting, just a little bit more coarse and rough around the edges and, and, and harsh in terms of speaking about issues of race and gender, sexuality that is not expected from politicians. And I think that right, he really built up his base and, and, and um, kind of uh, has attached himself 
with this idea of I cannot be controlled by the career politicians. And that is very much like a he's from the school of social media, I'd say. So absolutely, I think that, that it can cause some problems. But I don't I, I, I don't see this as being an equal two sides of the coin. It can amplify racism and it can amplify anti-racism in my mind as racists reveal themselves on social media, more people realize that this is a fight that, that we need to get into and more people are going to be on the side of, Oh, okay. This is something that we need to, we need to push back on. And on the opposite side, mainstream outlets have not been telling the counter narratives um, that, that, that support, um, you know, the fight against racism. And that's one of the reasons why people thought that racism was behind us. If you watch the news, um, you don't always right. You don't always see evidence of racism. You see evidence of, you know, disorganization in you know uh, communities of color. That the news wants to talk about, uh, you know, black on black crime, not about um, you know the the unequal um, funding for for um, education. Um, and so I think that that is what we're seeing now is that we are able to share counter narratives, stories that are different from the stories that. The folks in power want you to believe in ways that 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 are waking people up to the realities of the continuing problem of racism in our society. So I, I don't know that I think it's it's getting worse. I think one, no, no, one thing I would say is is, is unique um, and a struggle for us now is this um, misinformation and not being able to um, always tell in real time where the trolls and the and the bots are coming from and 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 what the their agenda is um not to say that misinformation is new because i think misinformation and you know through mainstream news sources has been something that has been a problem that's plaguing us so again it's not a new problem but it is something that, that is not some utopia where just because we have access to online tools that now activism and organizing is easy it's interesting because when i think about like I, I live in London at the moment and there's always a protest going on about something. And the way you find out about it is usually through social media. So you get that nice bonus of being in the loop and knowing when something's going on. And it's funny because I think about like prior to the internet, like how did people organize these social movements and stuff? So there is that aspect of it that it, it does help get information out. You know, in the 80s and 90s, like police violence and stuff, right? How much was there happening that wasn't being recorded and what being put out to the world, right? And then we did an episode in the past on the Rodney King uh, situation, which whereas this was kind of like that first time that somebody really got video of police abuse. And then nowadays, anytime some a cop is talking to somebody, somebody nearby is pulling their phone out to record the situation. So it's bringing it more to the front now where, where I, I think as a public, we're more aware of it, but it's hard to say like if it's worse or not, because I think we're just being made more to more aware. Go ahead, James. Remember, remember we, we talked about it in an episode before where with the Floyd issue, it, it's, we even talked about how similar it was to the early nineties and how things hadn't changed that much. And it's kind of sad, right? Because like things should get better and it just kind of, it seems like it's the same as it was 30 years ago. But like you said, Milo, like nowadays, at least we like think, I guess the information and social media travels so fast. And so good things happen, but come back fast, but bad things can happen fast too. I think that's the thing that I have 
problem with social media is, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, I don't know if we even had a concept of social media. Like on Star Trek, Captain Picard wasn't checking his social media. He had an iPad, which was ahead of its time, but he wasn't checking social media. He was still writing letters old school, right? We didn't have a concept of people would be so connected like all over the world so quickly. So I, I, I don't know. I guess I don't. I have a problem with it because I think things are so fast that I don't, I don't know if people are thinking more. And, and I think it's good that people can organize and, and share ideas. But, you know, back in the eighties, like you said, Rob, it, it, like racism was not cool. And you started to see a lot of that in the eighties and nineties. And it very much wasn't cool to the point where you're, you know, maybe your uncle was a racist, but he had to kind of like, you know, he couldn't just go off on rants anymore. Or if he did, he'd be kind of like, hey, that's not cool, Uncle 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 Mike, right? That's not cool anymore. But now it seems like they, they, they're they emboldening each other. Like, if you want to be racist, you totally can be. And because, hey, there's so many people in social media that are with me about my racism that it's totally okay. And then that leaks out into the, to the like, normal world. You can organize well and you can share ideas, like you said, that aren't mainstream because the mainstream media, they have their own set things that the maybe the corporations say you can and can't say. But at the same time, like misinformation spreads so quickly. That's I guess that's my issue with it is how fast mis misinformation spreads. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a struggle. Um, and I think you're right. We can we've seen it. Uh, influence elections, right? We we see it influence public opinion that absolutely misinformation through social media is a problem. Um, but if I can give two examples of of kind of benefits of social media for organizing, uh, let me go ahead and do that. So first of all, before social media, organizers knew how to organize, and and right, they didn't they didn't need the email chains. And so uh, one one of the things I talk about uh, in the book is the organizers that were behind the civil rights movement. And when we think about the civil rights movement, we think about Martin Luther King. Um, when we think about Rosa Parks, we think about a woman who was tired and just decided to sit down. And then magically there was a boycott. But the reality is for 30 years before Martin Luther King, uh, Ella Baker was organizing in the South and building um, the human capacity. So building up regular everyday people to be able to be part of the movement, um, you know, for black freedom. And so when Rosa Parks sat down, it wasn't an accident. It was a plan. And they said, this is the day you're going to sit down. You're going to get arrested. And we already have a, um, a system set up for people to give rides to everyone who needed to use the bus to get to work. We're going to be right, the people with cars that volunteered their cars. And we're going to be driving folks around all day. So behind the scenes, there's all kind of organizing going on. Start this big event. Why did they need to have a big event like this in order to get mainstream media attention? That they had to strategize, how can we make sure the cameras are on to show what racism looks like? How can we make sure the cameras are on to show when they're sicking the attack dogs on us, when police are beating nonviolent protesters? And the you know journalists... And, and media was they were not always interested in in telling the story of the fight for black freedom. Um, and so that was something that 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 black activists were dependent on the media to share that story, to get those images out there were part of the 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 you know the theory of nonviolent protest is we believe people are good. We believe that when they see how ugly racism is, that they're going to be on our side. 
Um, nowadays, the, the activists don't have to fight as hard to get media attention because through social media, we can demand attention and we can, our, you know, we can ourselves uh, get issues out uh, um, where, where, where um, the, the world has to pay attention because it's, it's gone viral. Um, and so examples of that are my buddy Jacob Groshek did a paper looking at uh, the size of different hubs for information sharing during the protests in Ferguson and found that black activists on the ground were bigger hubs for information sharing than were traditional media outlets. And so that right, that's just a change in power dynamic where we don't have to ask permission from the gatekeepers to share information with the world. Um, now, on the misinformation side of things, on the algorithm side of things, there is potential and, you know, some evidence that big social media giants can become the new gatekeepers of information, right? So this is not a perfect system, but it is a big shift in power um, in favor of activists and folks who are fighting for freedom. Um, and then the second example I'll give, right, if we think about the 80s and 90s, yes, overt racism was out of style. If you have a racist uncle, you roll your eyes at him on Thanksgiving when you're all when the family gets together. Um, but the reality is that the norm for folks of color in the 80s and 90s was to experience what we call racial microaggressions, racial slights, right? The subtle racial insults and 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 assumptions that are hurtful but are not overt enough to be labeled racist. That the racist jokes are like, oh, come on, man, you know, I'm just playing when I say you look like a monkey. Right. The, 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 the assumptions of criminality um, taught, right, like uh, assumptions about how people speak or behave in different ways that we know by the research is associated with higher rates of depression, more symptoms of anxiety, more stress, worse health outcomes, worse outcomes in education and right and, and, and um, you know, worse performance at work. So these are things that are hurtful but no one ever spoke up about because it's, it's difficult to speak up about, right? The research on racial microaggressions says the most common way to respond is just to not respond. So that is an example of the type of racism that was just normal for people to experience um, during those times. And one of the things that I found um, in the book is the ways that, that, that folks feel more empowered and more capable of challenging everyday experiences with subtle forms of racism like microaggression in online spaces, that they feel less alone, there's less responsibility on them to do it because it's kind of a community level response. They have people who um, are, are able to, you know, to support their interpretation of events that they weren't sure if it's about race. Um, right. And they're, they're able to respond in their own time with a little bit of distance where they don't they know that their personal safety is not in jeopardy when they type this message, as opposed to they might they may be in jeopardy if you speak up to someone making a racist joke at a bar. Um, and so I think that, that that is one example of social media um, giving voice to people who have historically been silenced. And I think that right that that is a that is important and real. Um, that, that, again, it doesn't mean that we've reached some utopia because there still are many problems associated right with online communication. Yeah. Hmm. Milo, you know me. I love my visits to the wine bar, but I'd like to expand my palate and find some nice sweet wines. You should check out staggeringunicorn.com. They have an exquisite selection of 34 different wines, each crafted with real fruit and no artificial ingredients. I suppose I have to go to the store to get a bottle. You do not, my friend. They conveniently ship their magical creations to 38 states, including ours of Washington, ensuring everyone can enjoy the enchantment of sweet wines. And on top of that, for additional savings, they offer a wine of the month club 
adding an extra touch of delight to your exploration of their fantastical collection. Bro, I'm signing up. Where do I go? You can embark on a magical journey to the sweeter side of wine at Staggering Unicorn Winery at staggeringunicorn.com. This is kind of opening up my head a little bit because Milo will tell you, like, I'm kind of like, social media is the worst. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not on it. I'm like, I don't, but like, I, I guess I didn't think about the things that you're saying now um, as much. So do you find though that thinking back to the, back to the sixties and that era, you mentioned, you know, the, a 30 year buildup, right. Of organizing and developing the network and that kind of stuff. And now it kind of seems like the next new thing and then it fizzles out. So we had that 1% thing a few years back and you had a bunch of protesters hanging out in their tents and at Wall Street. And then you never mm -hmm. heard about it again. And then all the protests that we had a couple of years ago uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, to be honest, I haven't really heard much about it since then. Like I would say the past six to nine months beyond the news stories of like the Florida education system trying to ban certain books or ban cert certain uh, teachings and stuff like that. And the Me Too movement, same thing. I haven't really heard a lot about it. And it kind of seems like they they kind of happen because you know social media gets in the news, it gets a lot of likes and stuff like that. And then it kind of fizzles out. And I don't know if it really changes anything. And that's the thing, like in the civil rights, like what you were talking about, they, they really did things like made change yeah and and it was long term like martin luther king was around doing things and it was a movement that over many years and i think like you said my lot maybe the thing i have now is it's like well if i get enough likes and subscribes on my movement then it's a movement for now and it's not real movement like it's 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 digital movement you know like maybe we need more of the old school kind of movements where it's not, oh, I have a hundred thousand or a million likes. Like we're actually out on the street getting arrested and writing letters in jail. That's that's old school. Yeah. No, I no, I love that. I think that that you're exactly right that social media is not enough. It is not the end so right online organizing is not the end goal. And I definitely think it needs to be attached to real world direct action. Um now there is evidence that engaging in social media activism especially for young folks, predicts higher political involvement as they get older. So, right, kids who who are, you know, sharing political or social kind of action information when they're teenagers are more likely to vote when they turn 18 than folks who are not sharing that those types of information. So, right, it is associated with kind of what we would see as being traditional political outcomes. Um, another way, like one of the ways that I frame it, I, right, I have a chapter in When the Hood Comes Off um, about activism. And I talk about how for young people who see it as being their job to share information with their peers and to build their peers' social, political, and racial consciousness, um, they develop identities as, as activists. And the impact that they have on their peers, a lot of it is about changing how they think about the world. And that is a traditional, when we think about organizing, like there's a model of organizing called transformative mobilization. And it's about helping people to imagine a different, a radically different world than what they live in. And that is an important step in, in terms of developing, developing people to be activists and to be change agents is understanding, oh, I've been 
I've been taught to think that the world needs to be this way, but it doesn't need to be that way. And there's a more just world, a more just world as possible. And these are the steps that we can take. And I think that that is what we should expect from social media is that it can help people. It can expose people to, it can give, it can give language to the types of, of racism and oppression that are not spoken about. Um, that are right that, that that are experienced in silence that are I, I call them masked that they're hidden and that everyone doesn't see them or recognize them it can give language to those things and it can provide information and resources to help people understand what fighting racism looks like now uh, of course um, the hope would be that the folks who grow in their understanding of inequality through online spaces then get involved in in-person activism and I think we have seen some evidence that that happens. Um, you look at the uprisings in 2020 that people were hitting the streets. It wasn't just the tweets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then in terms of there being kind of sustained um, organizing, I think it is difficult to 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 keep that up, right? Like like I think that the movement for Black Lives is a leaderless um, kind of coalition. Um, there are people who are remain engaged um, in the struggle, um, but I think that that right that 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 it is something that 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 we are continuing to figure out is how do we translate um, us, you know, talking about these things on social media to real world action. Um, and I think that that is a, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing struggle, but I think there are lots of people who are doing it the right way, who are finding ways to, to turn that into raising money and to, to calling politicians and, and making noise. And I, I you know, I think that um, um, part of the issue, and this is not new in the social media age is when organizations and and people in charge, you know, make small concessions to try and win people over that do not translate into lasting, um, you know, uh, a lasting impact. But then there are things that that seem like tiny steps in the right direction. I think that that is a lot of what we've seen, um, you know, kind of post 2020 is right. There are lots of organizations and groups that are paying lip service to racial um, equality and anti-racist work who we, right, we, we haven't necessarily seen the policies, you know, and practices change in, in the ways that we like. I think that's a good point is mentioning policy in that I think young people just maybe have to know that clicking a like button is not policy, right? You could have a hundred thousand likes, but doesn't mean it's a vote. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, I got, yeah. I, I got a million views. Well, they're still not votes, right? That's still not going to change policy. So I guess that's what I don't want young people to do is start to think that, oh, I have a million views, therefore things will change. Well, no, you actually got to go like vote and you got to encourage other people to vote and you got to call people who are in charge that you elected. And that's how you really change things. Right, right. No, that's real. That's real. And I think, right, this is something that that, that I think that we're working towards. But um, absolutely, we need to keep finding ways that that, that I think that, you know, um, think about what our goals are through social media that we want to amplify, you know, issues and, and, and things to fight for, but then we don't want that to just live online. Before we wrap it up here, last question, would you say discussions around race has gotten better about the same or worse since the eighties? Um, I have to say, I have to say better. I think that there are more discussions about race in mainstream settings now than there were then. I think even right, like I think that when we look at the changes in discussion, I think that more people are aware today of, for example, police violence than they were in the 80s and 90s. You know, I'm someone I was born in the 80s 
And I think that right for me growing up, um, being, you know, a black person growing up in a, a predominantly POC neighborhood, we, we all knew that police violence was real because we all knew people who, who were victims of police violence. But when I would go to school with white folks, they did not believe me. Right. They did not believe they, they, they legit would say that is not true. My uncle's a cop. They don't do things like that. And so there's just this disconnect of, you know, if you don't believe the stories of the folks who are victims of this violence, how can we convince you that there is that right that, that anti-black police violence is racist? You can't convince people. I think when you see videos of it, there are more people now who are willing to concede. Wow. This is not what I thought was happening in America was for violence to look like this. And I think that that the conversation is different because more people have been exposed to this unmasking of racism um, in online spaces, you know, from videos of police violence to leaked emails of people in power, right? If you get a or you get a, a leaked audio of a judge using the N-word and then and then think back on the 30 years of cases that they've gone over. It's a right like we've been trying to convince people that the you know the criminal justice system is racist for decades and it takes a leaked audio for people to be like, ooh. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. Maybe we should take another look at, at her cases. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I actually, absolutely, I think better because I think it is exposing racism in the ways that it used to be hidden or used to be invisible. Mm-hmm. So where can people find you or find the book or anything like that if they want to? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you, you can find me on social media um, on Instagram. I'm at Rob on Twitter at Rob Eshman. Uh, you can find the book wherever books are sold um, or you want to support your local bookstores. If they don't have it in stock, you can ask them to order it. Um, it's really you can get it. You can get it from anywhere. So thanks so much for having me. And this was a great conversation, guys. Yeah, and that's when the hood comes off racism and resistance in the digital age. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Uh, That was very informative. And with that audience, we'll say we're out of here to rethink our usage of social media. Maybe it's better than we thought. 